You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. All right, everybody, welcome to Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. I got my co-host Eurosimos in the house as always. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for listening. We got some awesome news in just this morning from Spotify Wrapped. We're in the top 1% of podcasts, all podcasts shared globally. That was a pretty incredible stat uh, for us to receive. And shout out to you guys for, for making that happen. Thank you so much. And it's just super empowering uh, to recognize that this podcast is catching on and people are, I guess, becoming privier to different views about themselves and about reality. Um, so thank you so much. Round four of Rise Above the Herd is officially full. The course is full for the fourth time this year. And we're really looking forward to going on this incredible eight-week journey with the students who are on board. Um, We have Paul Check in the house with us here today. And we weren't sure what to expect coming coming into this conversation, but what he shared, his incredible life experiences, his stories. We talk about the hero's journey. This guy's been on the hero's journey. So buckle in for this podcast um, and let his, let his wisdom land because, you know, the pursuit of mastery, the pursuit of excellence, the pursuit of being more than we currently are is something which I think we should all aspire to be. We all need to hold a vision for ourselves bigger than what we can currently um, imagine. So please enjoy this conversation. Last thing before I get Paul on, uh, Friends of the Truth is our exclusive membership. For truth seekers, we have an incredible growing community. Um, We offer three calls a month, a community call, a guest expert call. we got Jason Christoph coming through this month, Irene Lyon coming through next month, plus live and interactive teachings by us. If you feel the call to connect with awesome truth seekers, grounded, rational on the path, so you can stay on your own path of of your highest calling and let iron sharpen iron, then head to friendsofthetruth.co and learn more and apply. Guys, thank you again. Please enjoy this episode. All right, everybody. Welcome to episode 99 of the Here for the Truth podcast. We truly have an incredible guest with us today. The amazing Paul Check is in the house, a name you're probably very familiar with. If not, Paul Check is a world-renowned expert in the fields of corrective and high-performance exercise, kinesiology, stress management, and holistic wellness. For over 30 years, Paul's unique integrated approach to treatment and education has changed the lives of many of his clients, his students, and their clients by treating the body as a whole system and finding the root cause of a problem. Paul has been successful where traditional approaches have consistently failed. He's the founder of the Czech Institute based in California. He's a prolific author of many books, articles, and blog posts, and he's the host of the popular podcast, Living 4D with Paul Czech. Such an honor to have you here, Paul. Thanks for being here for the truth. My pleasure, you guys. Paul, awesome. one way we'd really, really like to, um, I guess, kick off this journey with any first-time guest here is we want to dive deep into your personal hero's journey. What are the major rites of passage that you experienced in your life that were the pivotal turning points since, I guess, you really becoming who you are today? Wow, you know, that's a big story right there. Loaded. You got mm. you guys, I'm I'm uh I'm I've been around for a while. By the way, you're reading an old bio. I've been doing this for 39 years in January. There you go, man. Just grab that one from the website. That's cool. Um 
And 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 just because your guests are going to ask, I'm vaporizing tobacco and a mix of organic herbs called Awakening Spring with a drop of fennel seed oil and a flower essence called Owl, but it's an owl essence. Awesome. Why do you do it? Oh, uh, you know, speaking of rites of passage, I went through a pretty intense midlife crisis when I turned 50 and I just burned myself out just trying to give everything I had to the world. And Penny and I traveled for 20, probably close to 25 years, nonstop all over the world, making it around the world twice a year. I was probably doing hundred presentations a year, plus writing, developing courses on the road, just living in hotel from airplane to airplane, hotel to hotel. And dealing with all the pressures of a big business, a worldwide business. And, you know, I just got to the point where no amount of Tai Chi or anything I could do could revitalize me. And I had such a seriously screwed up circadian disorder from moving constantly that I, um, I spent about three years, just, I cut my schedule way back and, and did a lot of healing work for myself with plant medicines and rattling and drumming and chanting and painting and meditating and just trying to, you know, reorient myself and regain some life force and wait for my desire to engage the world to return. And in that process, I made a promise to myself that I'm not going to work anymore if I can't make it fun. So mm. because I enjoy vaporizing tobacco and herbs, it's my way of reminding myself that I'm doing this to have fun, not because I have to. So cheers. <laughs> That's the answer to that one. <laughs> Good answer. Cheers, man. I love it. Yeah, what got you what got you fired up to 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 get into health and to be the curious person that you are that goes down different rabbit holes of learning and everything? I'm so curious. Yeah. Well, you know, to the rites of passage. You know, the first probably big one was my mother and father splitting up when I was really small, I think three. And that, of course, leaves me and my brothers and sisters confused. Um, then my dad drowned when I was eight, and that was extremely painful. Um, then my mother married an extremely abusive man and, and, um, we I'm skipping lots of stuff just to concise, keep it more concise. But yeah. my stepfather was a special effects man for Universal Studios, but he had a degree in agriculture and him and my mom decided they wanted to immigrate to Vancouver Island, British Columbia from Los Angeles. So when I was 12, we immigrated to Vancouver Island. First, we had a pig farm in Idaho. Then we had a sheep farm in Oregon. And so my parents started a a big 142-acre sheep farm with a woolen factory um, on Vancouver Island. And so my next rite of passage was just dealing with my stepfather, who was quite violent and had no concept of a child. So we really all just worked constantly on the farm. And um, so... At a very early age, I was confronted with the pain and loss of my father and then 
being stuck with somebody that um, I didn't feel safe with who is physically violent. Um, and we were given, you know, a lot of adult responsibilities. We had a lot of animals to care for. We had a, you know, a big working farm. We had, you know, over a hundred sheep, chickens, pigs, cows, goats, horses. Um, and we pretty much did everything. We, we milked our own cows. We made our own butter, our own cheese, our own ice cream. Um, we, my mother prepared all our food. We pretty much lived mostly off the land. You know, my father's sort of rule was if you're not bleeding to death or vomiting, shut the hell up and get back to work. So there was a lot of, um, frustration, anger, resent, uh, because I didn't really have a chance to play or do the things that, you know, I wanted to do. And I used to be working out in the fields and see my friends drive by because the Island highway went right next to our property. So they would wave and hang their asses out at me. And, you know, and I was like, God damn it. I wish the hell I could go do the kinds of things they're doing, you know? So as stressful as it was, my father really taught me about responsibility. Um, you know, the animals eat before you eat. Um, you know, when you're dealing with things like births, slaughtering, um, illnesses in animals, uh, crop situations, weather, fences, um, there's just a lot of internal dynamics in a big working farm like that. And, and so you have to make a lot of personal sacrifices to make sure every animal is taken care of and planting is done on time. Harvesting is done on time. Um, Vancouver Island's an intense weather environment. So with the, you know, when I lived there, we were getting about 161 inches of rain a year and, the first year we moved there, we had eight feet of snow. So imagine being a kid from Los Angeles who ends up on wow. freeze your ass off Vancouver Island. And, you know, I did not like it. Um, so my first hero's journey, you could say, was really the death of my father. My second hero's journey was putting up with my stepfather and and really having to learn how to put up with discomfort and accept adult responsibilities as a child. Then my next rite of passage was my girlfriend got pregnant. And so my first son was born just uh, shortly after I turned 18. Um, I left home when I was 16 or 17. And so I already my parents' rule was the day you quit school was the day you leave home. And I hated school and I hated being at home. So I'm like, screw it, I'm out of here. So I was off doing my own thing. But the next rite of passage was when my son was born. Um, and it was actually my first full-blown samadhi experience. As my son was coming out of the birth canal, something happened and I was blown into the universe. And as his head came out, I found myself one with the entire universe. 
And I was going through this experience of watching him be born. And my wife had a 72 hour, very intense labor. So I was there supporting her. And that was kind of like a, uh, a rigorous journey, you know, to be yeah. with someone you love who's in extreme pain for 72 hours and no sleep and just, you know, taking care of her and helping her, massaging her and just meeting her needs. And and also, like, you know, it's hard to watch somebody in that much pain for that long. And so as I was watching him come out of the birth canal and I, I was having this what I later realized was a samadhi in, in yogic terms. Um, I was overwhelmed with all this emotion and tears and just this realization that, you know, I, I have got to make ends meet. Her parents had no money. My parents had no money. So I just felt the weight of this huge responsibility. So I really, focused myself and then um i immigrated out of vancouver island because there was just a, a real high unemployment rate people think the unemployment rate here is high it was 18 almost 18 percent at the time there the whole logging industry had kind of shut down and the, the whole place came to a standstill so it was very hard to get work but being an american citizen i had a friend in florida so he told me there was lots of work there. So I flew to Florida and within an hour, I had a job on a fishing boat. So I worked on a fishing boat for a year, but found out quickly they ripped the crew hands off and I was making $2.50 an hour by the time they kept taking all the money they called crew shares out, which was just ridiculous. Um, so then I went to work as a Marine mechanic. I went to trade school when I was 18 on Vancouver Island. I think I was in trade school for a year or something like that to, to be an auto, to be, in, it was automotive and industrial repair. So I learned, you know, everything about hydraulics, electronics, um, internal combustion engines. So I could, I could work in a lot of different areas from that training. Mm -hmm. um, so then I realized the fishing thing was just ridiculously long hours for almost nothing. So I got a job as a, marine mechanic right next door to where we lived i bought a trailer there and moved my wife and kid there but I, again i i found myself going god this sucks you know i'm working in the bilges of boats and it's just rotten fish and stinks and it's hot when i'm down in there working on engines and running engines and and I just knew that I just couldn't, this wasn't sustainable. Uh, I, I had bigger aspirations than that. So then the guy that owned the marina was a fighter pilot from Vietnam. And so I just happened to start asking him, you know, what was it like in the military and whatever. And strangely enough, I went home one night and there was a postcard with a picture of Uncle Sam going, Uncle Sam wants you. And it was a a card to offer you to come to take testing to get into the military. So I thought, well, I wonder what would happen. I just, you know, I, I only had a ninth grade education and the only branch of the military you can get into at that time without a, a high school diploma was the army. So I did all the testing in the army and I scored so high. They said, you know, if you had a two year associate's degree, you could be trained as a pilot because you scored high in all the things they want for pilots. 
And I said, well, I hate school, so I'm not going back. Um, what's the, and so what, 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 uh, what's interesting is that my, my boss, the, the ex fighter pilot, and I talked to him about this and I said, you know, what's the best thing to do? He said, Paul, ask them. It's called MOS, Military Occupational Specialty. You qualify for it that has the longest school because the more money they invest in you, the more you're worth when you get out of the military. So I actually qualified to be what's called a 68J1P. I was I also was in the 82nd Airborne Division. I was a paratrooper. And uh, so this was a year of training. So I spent a year of my military time in electronic school learning to repair the most advanced weapon systems in the world at the time. I went in in, in 1983 is when I joined the military. And so my job was to repair weapon systems on Cobra helicopters. And um, I did extremely well. It was very intensive training, but I hated the job because when I got out of the school and got recruited to my unit, which was in the 82nd Airborne Division, the only thing they would let me do is take access panels off and then higher ranking guys got to do the real work. And depending on what your rank was, you could only do certain things. But in school, I learned to do everything. Now, I'm a guy that built his own stock cars, drag cars. I'm a welder. I built my own roll cages. I was a very successful motocross racer, drag racer, stock car racer, set three track records racing stock cars. And here I am reduced to a Phillips screwdriver technician undoing access panels after a year of intensive training where I scored 97% on an average for 26 tests over a year of training in one of the most intensive schools I've ever been to in my life. I mean, this is like hardcore eight hours a day of electronics and it's not easy stuff. And I had to go to math school because my math skills weren't good enough because in electronic school, they won't let you use calculators. So you have to figure out all the circuitry by hand. So it's like really mentally draining. And I'm in school eight hours a day doing this. Like this is like brain racking stuff, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you're talking like wire diagrams that cover a whole table, you know, and you're looking at just one section of this helicopter with miles of advanced technology in it. And so I'm like, I have got to get out of here. <laughs> I cannot handle this. And I don't like being told what to do by anybody. How, how old were you then? 22. Okay. And so I was smart, though. I had an intuition I may not like the military. So my backup plan, you see, I was a boxer when I was a kid and a kickboxer. I grew up fighting in a boxing club because I loved to fight <laughs> when I was young. I had to get the stress of my father out of me, you know. And uh, so boxing was great. Kickboxing was great because I could hurt people legally. <laughs> And um, uh, so when I signed up for the military, I knew as a kid because I used to see my parents wouldn't let us have a television. So I was raised without a television. But whenever I was with my buddies on the weekends, Wide World of Sports was on. And because me and a lot of my buddies were martial artists and boxers, we loved to watch the boxing on Wide World of Sports. And I kept seeing the Army boxing team on there because they were one of the top 
ranked teams in the world. When I got on the Army boxing team, we were the third ranked amateur team in the world. Uh, Cuba and Russia were the only two that ever beat us. And so I my plan B was if I don't like my job, I'll make sure that I sign up for paratroopers to be a paratrooper. So I end up at Fort Bragg because that's the headquarters for the Army boxing program. And I will just go fight my way onto the boxing team because you can't get on it unless you beat somebody that's on it, which is not easy. And so long story made short, I had to get on that boxing team and it was really hard to do because in, in I was a zero one priority unit, which means you're the first one to go to war no matter what. So your unit's always on high alert. And if anything breaks, you work nonstop. I mean, we were sometimes pulling 36 hour shifts and I was burning out. I got addicted to caffeine. I was gaining weight. These guys hardly ever exercise because I was with aviators. So they don't, you know, they're all techno wizards and they hardly ever do any exercise. And I'm like, I'm dying here. So I had to figure out how do I get myself in shape to go try out for the boxing team because whoever I step in that ring with is going to be a trained killer. So I was doing push-ups and sit-ups and every chance I could, I was just turning every opportunity into a work and I'd get up at super early in the morning and run. And, you know, so long story made short, I finally, I, I wish I had time to tell you the whole story because there's some pieces I have to leave out, <laughs> but just because it would take too long. But anyhow, I, I scheduled a tryout at the boxing team and I took out one of the welterweights. I was a welterweight. At, I fought welterweight. Um, so I got his spot on the team and then I performed very, very well. But I was also representing the Army in triathlon. I won the Army triathlon. Um, the first year I got eighth or ninth. The second year I won it. And then... So I actually fought and trained for triathlon at the same time. And we trained six to seven hours a day, seven days a week. So these, the trainers and, and the coaches were like, and the athletes were like, how in the freaking hell can this guy train for triathlon? Man, this is like hardcore stuff. We're, we're, we walk out of here dead. And this guy goes out and rides his bicycle for 50 miles, you know? And I would, when they would have lunch, I would go to the pool and do my swim training and I would do my run training with them in the morning. So the long and the short of it is, is my company commander wanted to bet a lot of money on me because he wanted to win the army triathlon in a bet. And he said, these guys were all big betters, all these generals and colonels. So he came to me one day and he says, Paul, I'll let you stop boxing if you want to train full time for the army triathlon, but you got to win because I'm going to bet a lot of money on you. And I said, Ah, and I knew I wasn't going to turn pro because my fighting style was quite aggressive. And there was already a lot of guys on the team that were punch drunk by 19. And so I could see, you know, that when you fight that much, if you're not good at, if you're not a sugar Ray Leonard, you can end up brain dead. Yeah. And I wasn't sugar Ray Leonard. I was someone who like to get in there and mix it up. And so when I told the coaches I was going to leave and train full-time for triathlon, they said, oh my God, don't do that. We will let you become the trainer. You can take over the entire training program, condition the athletes, because the big problem they were having is the guys couldn't last well in the third round. 
So they kept, whenever we would fight the top guys, the top teams like Cuba and Russia, you can't mess around with those guys. They'll, they'll kill you. They're ready for business. And so they gave me the job of taking over the nutrition because they knew I ate completely different than any of them. I always was very, my, you know, my mother's a yogi and I grew up on a farm and I knew about natural food and whole food eating and I'd studied lots of it. And so they said, whatever you're doing, your job is to make these guys as fit as you. So I also implemented the first massage therapy program. I studied massage therapy just by reading books. My wife would massage me to help me with triathlon, even though she had no training. It would help me so much. It blew my mind. So I just offered to start doing therapy. So I, I was actually taking care of 30 of the best fighters in the world. The team doctor was an osteopathic physician. So I got to spend two years learning on the job from an osteopathic physician. And so what happened was when, when I became the trainer, the fighters got a lot fitter. The injury rate dropped down. They started winning a lot more tournaments. And I got this sense of reward because it was really the first time in my life where I got a lot of acknowledgement. And I really felt like I was contributing to the lives of people in meaningful ways. And I was getting really positive feedback from the fighters, from the team doctor, from the coaches. All the teams that we fought would keep saying, like, what the hell are you guys doing different, man? Because you're like, there's something going on here. And so that really brought me to the point where by the, I think I was 22, maybe 23 at the time, I realized that I got a lot of joy out of helping people achieve their goals and that I had an aptitude from all my background in mechanics, electronics, and hydraulics. I was able to actually understand how the body works. So when I studied anatomy, it was kind of like reading a wiring diagram or building you know, an engine or whatever. So I, I didn't have that much of a hard time with anatomy. Anatomy was very hard for a lot of people. So when I got out of the military, before I got out, I researched all over the world. I hired a librarian to help me. And I looked for where the best sports massage therapy schools in the world were. And it turned out that the best one was in Encinitas, California. And I had worked in Carlsbad a couple of years before I joined the military. I got a job working for a landscaping company. And the guy was my counselor because I went to some self-realization fellowship summer camp. My, my mother joined the self-realization fellowship when I was 12, which is Paramahansa Yogananda's teachings and system. Mm -hmm. So I spent the summer of my 15th year in camp with the monks and my counselor owned a landscaping business. So when things started slowing down, I, I got a job working with him and he, in, in the landscaping business. So I actually lived in Carlsbad in an apartment right on the beach, went surfing every day. So when I found out that the best place to go to massage school was in Encinitas, which is just like one town over, I knew exactly where it was. And Southern California was the training mecca of the world for triathletes. So I'm like, that's where I'm going. And the guy that I used to work for owned a big house that he was building there. And he had a trailer that he let me live in while I went to massage school. So I went through sports massage therapy school. And then I also got 
my extra training to get licensed as a holistic health practitioner, which allowed me to do anything as long as it was considered holistic or natural. So people could see me for any kind of problem, digestive trouble, mental, emotional, structural problems. And my license would allow me to work very openly. It was really a very good thing to have because otherwise I'd have been limited by the scope of practice of say a physical therapist or a chiropractor or uh, whatever. So I just started traveling the world looking for the best doctors and therapists on anything that I realized I needed to get more expertise at, be it back pain, neck pain, visceral problems, digestive troubles, the stuff that I kept running into over and over again and realized, okay, I need to get more knowledge. So I spent probably the first 16 or 17 years of my career averaging about $35,000 or $40,000 a year um, on continuing education. Um, I ended up working for a chiropractor who was one of the instructors at the massage school, built a big business there. Then I got hired by the largest physical therapy clinic in in San Diego with 22 physical therapists and they had a surgical center with 13 orthopedic and neurosurgeons and they had their own surgical center and they did their own dissections. By this time I'd done five cadaver dissections in like university settings and courses, but I got to go to surgery with anybody that I wanted to with all my clients and anybody that I worked with. And so I got to, to interact with a lot of very skilled physical therapists and surgeons, and they had a lot of respect for what I did. So I got this cross-pollination environment where I got to learn how to see through the eyes of an osteopathic physician or an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon or a physical therapist. I'd worked with a chiropractor for almost two years. And so I started really amalgamating a very comprehensive holistic approach by 1988 i was getting requests from people from all over the united states to come teach my approach because i would end up in classes and what happened is instructors would ask questions that nobody can answer and i could always answer them so people would start realizing who i was and say well why don't you teach classes you know more than the instructors so finally after i heard that enough times i put my own system of education together and started teaching in 1988. That's when I, um, by the way, 1988 is the year I brought the Swiss ball to the exercise industry. You may not know it, but I'm the guy that introduced the Swiss ball to the gym industry. Wow. Prior to that, it was only used. Yeah, it was only used in, in um, re neurological rehabilitation and sometimes in aerobics classes. So I developed all the education and technology for how do you use a Swiss ball in a gym as part of a progression from rehabilitation to high-level athletic conditioning. I also invented the concept of the adjustable cable column. So prior to me, there was only the cable columns that were high and low, and there was only one column on each side. You probably remember that. I don't know if you guys are old enough mm -hmm. to remember that. So I developed the concept of multiple cable columns so you could do bilateral pushing and pulling. So I invented the whole concept. I also came up with the idea of putting chin-up bars of multiple sizes on top of cable columns on, on the cross beams. So 
uh, a company called um, Fitness Works in New Zealand uh, took my ideas and manufactured them. And so I had my own line of equipment. So I've pioneered a lot of things, but those are some examples mm -hmm. of things yeah. that I pioneered. So, you know, the, being on the boxing team was a hero's journey. Um, surviving my father on the farm was a hero's journey. Being a father at 18 was a hero's journey. Um, losing your dad at eight was a hero's journey. Um, then my brother committed suicide when I was 34. That was a very intense, painful experience that took me into a real deep period of grief and pain that I had to kind of work my way through. Um, then, you know, what happened was I started running my seminars in the United States, particularly, but hardly anybody would come. And then all of a sudden I'd have classes that were full but I couldn't figure out why are people not coming consistently. So I started investigating and talking to the students that were there saying, you know, why are you coming and the people you work with aren't, for example. I, and I kept getting people from professional sports teams like physical therapists, strength coaches, um, a lot of physical therapists and strength coaches from professional sports teams. And I would say, well, how come you're here? But none of the guys you work with are here. And the answer almost consistently was they don't think you can teach them anything without a college degree. I said, well, I got a question. Why are you here then? They said, well, I could tell by looking at your brochure that whatever you were doing was way different than what we were doing. And, and nobody could even write a brochure like that that didn't know what they were doing. So long and the short of it is I ended up going bankrupt because I got back then, you know, there was no internet. So I used to have to send 30 to 50,000 brochures out in the mail to try to run a successful seminar. So by the time I'd paid for the conference room and they'd make you pay 90 days in advance and there's no return, you can't back out. So if I didn't have a good turnout, I couldn't cancel the workshop. So I'd have to put sometimes 2000 bucks down to hold a space big enough to hold 60 or 70 people. Cause sometimes I'd get 80, 90, hundred people. And then sometimes I'd have five people show up. And so what would happen is I'd have to put like 35, 40,000 bucks on the line. And then if I had five, 10, 15 people show up, I'd lose about $30,000. Yeah. Sometimes I'd make 60 or $70,000. But what happened is over the course of a couple of years, there was enough small classes because the expenses were so high. I started getting into more and more debt. I got to the place where I didn't know what to do. I got to $131,000 in debt. And I, I went to my accountant and, and said, you know, I don't know what to do. And he said, I think you should file for bankruptcy because I don't think you're ever going to recover from this. Now, that was the worst advice I ever got. So anyhow, what happened is I ended up filing for bankruptcy and I had to shut down. At that time, I had um, a clinic. I had to shut it down. I had everything I owned in my car and I had my library stacked up in a box of books and I, and I couldn't make a go of it in the United States. People were too up themselves here. They thought they knew everything. But I started getting requests to come teach in Australia and New Zealand. And one guy was on the New Zealand Olympic team, a speed skater, 
And he kept reading my articles in magazines like Muscle Media 2000, Muscle and Fitness, and various places that I used to write articles for. And so he really wanted me to come there. And then there was a massage therapy school in um, Canberra, Australia. Yeah. Um, and so they brought me in. And people in Australia and New Zealand absolutely ate my stuff up. They thought it was just mind-blowingly good. And so I had a significant response on the first go. And both of the guys that were putting these workshops on said, come back, come back, come back, because people want more. And then word got out, jumped forward a couple of years. Then I ended up having a distributor that took on the job of being my distributor for the Australian New Zealand Territory. And so he would set up tours where I'd be over there sometimes with Penny for four months at a time, going from city to city, lecturing. I'd do a middle of the week lecture, and that would be to kind of prime them to sign up for the weekend workshops, which are usually three-day Friday, Saturday, Sunday events. And I, I did hundreds of them. So, you know, for probably five years, Penny and I pretty much stationed ourselves down there and developed a huge following, and my business just exploded. But I was living on the road all the time, which was challenging. Yeah. But that really put the Czech Institute on the map. I'd started the Institute in 1995. So this is like 95, 96, 97, and 98, 99, the first probably five years. And then all of a sudden, people from all over the world started going, Jesus, what's going on? You know, they would go on vacation to Australia or New Zealand, and they might be a strength coach or a someone from a pro sports team or a personal trainer, and they'd run into these people called Czech practitioners that knew 10 times more than they did, and it scared the hell out of them. And I'd also gotten hired by a number of professional sports teams. You know, I got hired by the Chicago Bulls. I worked for them for many years as a consultant. They were the first ones to take on my Swiss ball training and my system of core conditioning. And that spread for a while. I, I, like wildfire, it spread to the Lakers and many others. I worked for the Denver Nuggets um, in Australia, the Canberra Raiders hired me because they had some serious problems. Ten of their their top ten athletes were all injured and they didn't know what to do. So I rehabbed them all and they made it to the finals the next year. And so the word spread. So I ended up working for all sorts of rugby teams, the All Blacks, Canterbury Crusaders, um, Auckland Blues. Um, and a lot of my students were involved in, in these organizations as well. So whenever they had people they couldn't figure out, they would hire me to come in. So, and then TV New Zealand approached me um, because they'd gotten a hold of my Swiss ball videos and offered to sell them and give me a commission. So I actually did a licensing deal with them, gave them master tapes. And for three years, like five, six times a day, they were running ads for my Swiss ball videos. So it got to the point where I couldn't even go anywhere in New Zealand without people wanting my autograph and telling me how my, Swiss ball program and rehab their back and got them back into sports. And it was quite a big thing. But then I started getting calls from the United States and people calling me up and giving me shit because I was selling out and claiming that I was giving all my technologies away to the foreigners. And I'm like, uh, don't even try that shit. You guys, I went bankrupt trying to educate you. <laughs> and now that you're getting your asses kicked, you're interested in what I was trying to give you a long time ago. So then it spread all over the world. And um, Penny took company. When I met Penny and we got together, 
I met her in uh, Canberra, Australia. Uh, she was living in Queenstown, New Zealand, and she came to study with me. We knew each other for four days, got engaged, and we've been married for 26 years. <laughs> wow. Wow. Penny's got a master's in business administration, a master's in exercise and sports science, and a master's in biological anthropology. So she had the knowledge to take my education and package it and sell it. So I went from bankrupt to making like two and a half million a year in about two years with her at the wheel. And so the Institute sort of regained its life again and, and then became a worldwide organization. So, you know, within that, there's many heroes journeys. I mean, on many yeah. levels, I, I became one of the most highly plagiarized uh, experts and authors in the world. We spent countless thousands and thousands on lawyers to write cease and desist letters. I was getting ripped off so much videos, books, you name it. Um, so I had to go through a lot of pain from people stealing from me. And it was tough because when you're running a big business and you have a big overhead and people keep stealing your intellectual property and then competing with you. Like I'd, we, we'd run into people run, running weekend workshops that were carbon copies of my courses where they would just take my name off everything and run it as though it was their own workshop. So I'd be going into town and we would all of a sudden have hardly anybody showing up and they'd say, Oh, I took the same workshop from so-and-so for half the price, but it was my workshop. So I had to have lawyers on these people all the time because I was just getting ripped off. So there's another hero's journey. He's putting up with all the thieves in the world, which drove me crazy. Um, then the challenges of running a big business. Um, so it's been a yeah. lot. I mean, I could go on and on, but you know, I've no, been no. doing this for almost 40 years. So there, there's a kind of a quick overview within no, which there's a lot of hero's journeys. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. We can have a Paul Check series and hear about each individual hero's journey, I'm sure. It's incredible. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Um, There's and, a lot of them. Yeah, and first of all, just thank you for, for sharing all that and, and, and being so real with your story, you know, starting from such a young age, you know? <laughs> I'm not into anything but real, baby. No, I respect that. It's great. Um, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners are going to appreciate, you know, hearing some of your backstory as well, you know, because, again, you know, the Paul Check Institute, a lot of people, um, you know, have gone through it. You know, people who I have who I respect talk about you all the time. You know, our, our dear friend, uh, Jason Kristoff, he, he, he promotes you all the time as well. So, uh, yeah, man, just appreciate everything you've done and and just learning so much through direct experience. Uh, and figuring out what works and what doesn't work, I think is 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 incredible. You know, um, I want to ask you this question. I want to kind of dive deep into um, your thoughts on like what what are the main things that keep people from achieving their goals? Well, the number one thing that stops people from achieving their goals is they don't really have a clear dream for themselves. They don't have a vision bigger than their current selves mm. to draw them into their potential and to give them a reason to stop doing the things that are self-limiting to break their bad habits. They don't have a reason to organize themselves and focus their effort in a given direction. You know, if you don't have a specific dream goal or objective, you'll never develop mastery at anything. And to develop mastery, takes years of committed effort. And so 
people get caught in just doing what their parents tell them to do or what their teachers told them they should do or what their friends think they should do. And so they end up really chasing money, but never really listening to their heart. And so if you don't have, you know, Jerry, a psychologist named Jerry West says, if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. So if you don't have a dream or a goal that gives you a reason to direct yourself and and to grow yourself and to work through the challenges that life naturally brings, then what you find yourself doing is medicating your discomfort or dissatisfaction with your ordinary average person's life. So you go to work for money, but doing something you don't really want to do, and you become like a machine, like a cog in a wheel. So you got to go home and get yourself drunk or get stoned just to deal with the pain of being average. Yep. So I learned a long time ago, you know, I always had goals. I was always like, I've got to get to the next level. I, I always wanted to be the best at everything I did. I did. I hated mediocrity. I've never like, ever since I was a child, whenever I was in sports, I had one mission, win. <laughs> When I was a fighter, it was my job to give you every opportunity to lose. And I was good at it. When I raced, I put my heart and soul in my racing and I won a lot. So I always had a reason to put in the effort that other people weren't willing to do because they weren't really doing things they were passionate about or that their heart was engaged in. They were usually just doing what someone else told them to do or what everybody else was doing. And they didn't really look into their own dissatisfaction with their own life because there was so many people around them living average lives that they'd sort of fall into the trap of being like mold that just starts to grow. And then the next thing you know, you know, they're getting caught up in, in addictions and distractions and kind of living on going from, you know, drug party to drug party and marginally participating in sports and doing a marginally good job at work or going to school to study things they're not really passionate about just to get a degree because they think that's what they have to do. And, and so that that kind of life just leads to what we have in society today is is really just like a corporate enterprise full of people working for money, but not doing anything that fills them with passion or inspires them to 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 grow, to become, to reach for their potential. And so what you end up with is a bunch of people just make excuses about how shitty mom treated me or dad treated me, or if I only had this, if I only had that. And, you know, that doesn't get you anywhere. So in a nutshell, if you don't have a dream bigger than yourself, you don't have any reason to become. And if you don't qualify the dream to make sure that your heart's really involved in it, then usually you're just chasing money. And what you do is you just spend the rest of your life working for money. But if you do what you love to do, then you're making love every day. Mm. You know, mm. I've been able to do what I've been doing for almost 40 years because I was passionate about it. I love to help people. The human body is extremely complex. There's no end to how long you can study it. You got to understand human physiology, anatomy, biochemistry, 
philosophy, science, uh, the science of mind. You got to understand behavior change. I mean, the things that you've got to do to be a skilled therapist are pretty tremendously big in the scope of what it takes to really master all these things. So for me, I just said, okay, now that I got that, I got to figure out why this problems here. Or why do I write good programs for people, but they then they go, don't, don't do them. They pay me thousands of dollars then they go home and just do the same stupid shit that they were doing that got them in trouble. So I realized, okay, this is a mental problem, right? So I had to study behavioral psychology and I had to study philosophy. And then I realized that it's belief systems that are trapping people. And then, so I started analyzing belief systems and studying belief systems. And I kept tracking almost probably nine out of 10 people's actually core beliefs that were limiting them that led to illness and injury and premature death almost all came from religious ideas. So I thought, okay, now I've got to study world religions. So I spent years studying all the world religions to see how were people programmed and what was the belief systems that were basically unconsciously guiding their choices. And one of the first things you find when you start studying religious belief systems is they always have a God that tells you what to do. So they have a parent figure in the sky. And so they never really actually learn to take responsibility for themselves, for their own creative ingenuity. And they're always hanging around waiting for someone to tell them what to do. Well, there's a lot of people that love to tell you what to do and make money off of you. So then I had to really, to really help people, I had to work on helping them see a lot of what was in their unconscious that was the reason that they stayed in marriages for 20 years when they weren't in love for the last 14 and didn't even want to be there or stayed at jobs that they hated, but convinced themselves they had to do it. And all, almost all of this tracked back to religious programming. So I had to study the Bible. I had to study the Quran. I had to study the world religious scriptures. And I had to come to understand what those things really meant and I found that what they really meant was very different than what people think they mean. So then I often had to spend time teaching people their own religion. And to do that, I had to say, okay, look, you're believing in an orthodox idea, but let me show you what a Christian mystic has to say about that. Let me show you what a Sufi mystic has to say about your beliefs that you think are guiding your life, that are getting you in a lot of trouble and leading you to be addicted and to staying in marriages that you're not happy in. So you end up having to have affairs on the side and hide that from God and all this shit, you know? And so, you know, what I kept my, my kind of my main question as a therapist was what causes that? So if I would rehab someone's back and I could get their structural pain or their structural pain to go away, but they still had the same pain, then I'd say, well, it's not a physical problem anymore. So I had to look into, well, why would pain stay when the structure is working? And it always relates to emotional and mental challenges. So then you look at the seven chakra system of the Hindus, for example, tells you right where to look into their psyche based on where the body's in pain. So I studied Chinese medicine. I studied uh, you know, Hindu philosophy. I studied all these different philosophies so I could actually map out the human psyche, the human mental construct, the human emotional construct, the biochemical construct the energetic construct, the structural construct. So then I could actually put on a map where the actual problem begins 
and where the symptoms are at and then say, okay, we have to address these symptoms to get you out of pain. We got to feed you better. So you have enough energy. You got to have enough sleep to think. And once you're feeling better, we have to really take that energy and look at the beliefs and the behaviors that are getting you in trouble all the time. So it took me a number of years, you know, probably 20 years of hard study to get to where I was able to develop an education curriculum that now is a four-year academy program, but it's actually seven years if you do all the training I developed. And I have, you know, it's a multidisciplinary program. So we have doctors of all types, nurses, massage therapists, physical therapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, dance and movement educators, strength coaches, personal trainers. Because I actually studied with all these different people so I could actually show you how to look through the eyes of these different people. So really what came out of it was the Czech Institute that teaches a holistic approach to truly helping people heal and looking at them as an integrated system that is a physical, emotional, mental, and a spiritual overarching container. And so that that's ultimately, you know, how... I kept growing myself and setting goals. Okay, I need to understand why this keeps happening or I need to understand how to deal with that specific problem. Like, what do you do with a Crohn's disease patient? What do you do with a chronic fatigue syndrome patient? What do you do with someone that has cancer? What do you do with someone that's depressed? And because I was focusing on something that I was passionate about, And because the more I learned, the more it helped me as an athlete, because I could actually see how I can enhance my own athletic ability through all this, which then helped let me help other athletes. I just felt I didn't have a problem dealing with the stress of of growing myself, because even though it was challenging to spend all this money and travel and take all these courses and study all the time, I felt like I was digging for gold and I kept finding chunks of gold and those chunks of gold gave me the ability to help somebody else. And the better I did at helping them, the more people wanted me to help them. And then my schedule would get so booked, nobody could get in. So I'd raise my rates, you know, so here I am today, a guy with a ninth grade education that makes $750 an hour. Um, and has no problem staying very busy and works for major corporations, militaries, and Olympic committees and numerous professional sports teams. Why? Because I had a dream and I followed it and I had the love in me to carry me through the challenges of life. Without it, I would have been a drug addict or committed suicide. And look what we have in the world. (laughs) I love it, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, You know, we share the sentiments of so much that you'd share just then. Henry Henry David Thoreau said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I think that's a lot of what, what you're hinting towards. And the question I like I wonder on is what 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 is the root cause of this quiet desperation? And I think you tapped into it when you mentioned that these these ideas that we're unconsciously programmed in and yeah. through through religious structures, you know. The like and what people don't realize is the philosophy that we put in is gonna directly relate to our output as well. So we're yeah. constantly being programmed with these ideas that lead us to mediocrity, that lead us to self-sabotage, that lead us to deeply unfulfilling lives. And all of a sudden, we forget the great mystery of what it even means to be a human being with all yes. this potential. You know, yes. we're, so, we're so detached from that. And looking around today, one of the primary things which I see like preventing people is we're all constantly distracted now. 
No, mm-hmm. like people can't even even commit to dig for the gold, which you mentioned. We yeah. can't commit to studying one modality in depth, let alone multiple modalities like you've had the chance to do in your life. So what would your advice be to those individuals that are constantly struggling with distraction to actually go and learn something in depth and make something of themselves? Well, one of the guys I've had on my podcast a couple of times, who's a martial arts master, a lawyer, and a very deep thinker and an excellent author of many books, Jonathan Bluestein, in a conversation we were having on a podcast together, made a very important point. And he said, the first thing that's important to do, especially if you're a younger person, is develop gong fu. And gong fu is a word that means mastery. Mm. And and so what you've got to do is you've got to find something that you love enough to devote yourself to the work of becoming masterful at it. Yeah. Because once you master one thing, you know how to master something. The process, you learn the process of mastery. And, you know, as a younger man, I love winning stock car races. And I I love, you know, to win stock car races, you've got to have fast engines and you've got to have well-built, set-up cars. There's a lot to it. So I went at my mechanics with the same passion that a surgeon would go at brain surgery. You know, I studied from the best mechanics. So the point is, I put time into being masterful as a mechanic because that's what I had to do to win a stock car race because the fastest guys either have the best mechanics or are the best mechanics because, you know, it doesn't matter how good your car handles if it's slow. Right. So, you know, my father was a drill sergeant. I had to do things right or I would get beat up. And so I learned as much as I hated my dad, when I got into the workforce, people just love me because they're like, this fucking guy works hard, man. And you don't have to tell him twice to do anything. And he's actually figures out how to do shit better than we do. Because I came from an environment on a farm where you, you, you don't, we didn't have a lot of money. If someone was broken, we had to fix it. I mean, I learned how to weld as a kid. You had to have sort of a versatile knowledge. And so My point is, is that I learned that to be successful, even as an athlete, you had to have a level of mastery that separated you from the others. You had to master training. You had to master nutrition. You had to master rest, which is hard to do when you're a young man or woman. You you had to master your mind because to be a great athlete means you got to deal with a lot of discomfort. So when I, because I came from this very intense athletic background, I had, and, and and from a farming community, I'd already learned the importance of mastering things. Because if you don't master things on a farm, you starve to death. If you don't master things as an athlete, you're always average. And I hate being average. If you don't master things as a race car driver, you don't win. If you don't master things as a motocross racer, you just see the, everybody's tailpipe. And so. I carried that sort of developmental way of things into my passion for the human body and for athletic performance and helping people heal. And I just continued to master everything I needed to master. So so the point is, is if somebody doesn't find something that they love enough to devote 
at least four years. It takes about four years to master something on average. Then they don't learn how to master anything and they get happy with mediocrity. And you don't grow. You you just you you just become the little piggy on the hind tit all the time, waiting for the government to give you a handout or somebody to pay you lots of money for looking at your iPhone all day. You know, that's just unrealistic. So in a nutshell, if you don't find something that excites you, that your heart's connected to, it will never be meaningful to you. And meaning is the currency that makes love flow. If I gave you both a job that would take you a month to do, but it had no meaning for you, like washing dishes or digging ditches, how much passion would you put into it? I know the answer Only, firsthand. Well, I'll tell you what. It wouldn't take you long before all you could think about is how soon can I get this out of, get out of here? Yeah. I just want to get this over, right? You can't have the how soon can I get out of here? How do I get this over with attitude to become successful in life or in business or in any pursuit? But if you, if it's meaningful to you to do what you're doing, then you connect your consciousness to the objective and you say, I am here and I'm going to get there and I will do whatever I have to do to move the obstacles. And I will learn every time an obstacle comes up. You know, I created a concept years ago because I saw the way that we conditioned athletes was very dangerous psychologically. We put so much emphasis on the winners, but nobody even give a shit about the guy in second or third place or anybody else. And so athletes would find themselves in a mental emotional crisis because they couldn't win enough. And I said, so what they developed is what I call a loser's mentality. And I, I, I used to teach athletes. I say, look, get the idea of a loser out of your mind and replace the word with learner. When I was a fighter, if someone could beat me, I met my teacher. I trained very hard. So if you were going to beat me, you were going to earn it. And if you could beat me in any sport, I knew you had an edge on me and I was going to figure out what it was. If it's if, if it was food, if it was technique, if it was equipment, I don't know. I'm going to figure it out. So I think if we go from this idea of losers to learners, and you see, when you're passionate about something and you run into an obstacle, or even if you get injured, instead of giving up, you say, okay, this is an opportunity to learn. All my injuries turned out to be great teachers. And when I was a therapist, because I had so many injuries from doing such extreme sports, I had gone through this process of having to literally, I mean, I've had a lot of bad injuries. I've had you know, like six major concussions, many broken bones, uh, broke my left leg in five places, cliff diving. I've had internal bleeding, racing motorcycles, crashing. Um, four broken noses from boxing and fighting, um, broken wrist, broken finger. I mean, I, if you look at me on x-ray, I look like a broken puzzle. But I've had days where I wiped out my racing bike 
and I was hurt so bad, I literally was bleeding all over the sheets. I would get up in the morning and, and literally have to slow peel the sheets off half of my body. And I'd be in super bad pain and could hardly walk or, you know, my brain was all fucked up from concussions. And I had to figure out how to get back. I wasn't going to let anything stop me. And so I let my body guide me. And I learned, you know, doctors don't know that much, but your body does know a lot. So if my body told me to get in cold water, I listened. If it said get in hot water, I listened. If it said crawl, I crawled. If it said roll, I rolled. If it said don't do that because it hurts, I didn't do that till it didn't hurt. You know, what I'm showing you is that when you really have meaning and a dream and passion to fuel you when your heart's involved, then every obstacle becomes an opportunity for not only learning, but for growth. And for me, as a guy who likes to win in this succeed, I I just said, okay, I, I've got to I've got to remove this obstacle and learn how not to have it pop up anymore. I, I think the young people of the world just simply, A, have been railroaded into not having an awareness that what's the most important person to listen to is the one sitting inside of you. When your parents tell you, don't become a musician, you'll never make any money, that's your first step on the hero's journey. That's when a happy hmm. fuck you needs to be placed. People told me 100%. a million times I would never amount to anything. I'm like, oh, really? Watch this. Okay, so the point is, if you, if you rely on external authority instead of your own inner authority, you will always become somebody else's play toy. You will always be someone else's servant. And you will never be inspired to become a master at anything because you will fall into the trap of believing that's how the world works and always wonder why everyone else has more money or more freedom than you do. So we actually have a very serious problem because we don't have enough elders teaching young people how to think for themselves, how to accomplish, how to deal with adversity, how to pick yourself up and dust yourself off. I rode in the rodeo when I was young too. And, you know, that's pretty intense. And I got hurt doing it. So I had to pick myself up. So, you know, I have three kids now. My first son's 43 and he's got a, oh. uh, I got a, a grandson. And then from Angie, um, my my third wife, I, I have two wives, Penny and Angie and I all and us live together. So I have two wives. Um, Angie and I have two kids together. Well, wait, they're all of our kids, but Mana's gonna be seven in February and Zoe's three. So I've got quite a spread, but you know, I'm making sure that my children aren't put into an academic situation where they have to do what everybody else tells them to do and learn a bunch of stupid shit that's not interesting to them. My job as a parent is to find out what does the soul of that child gravitate toward naturally. So my kid's house looks like, you know, a music shop, a toy shop, a lumber yard, a gym, a ninja training center, a gymnastic center. I mean, I, I, I throw all sorts of stuff. We all do. We just let them explore. And we have them in a Steiner school, Waldorf school. So they learn 
based on how the brain grows and develops instead of being told what to do by a bunch of people that just use the industrial education model, which is what our education systems are. They come from plantation owners that specifically designed them so nobody would be creative and think for themselves, but would just follow orders and work on assembly lines. So we're actually using worldwide an education system that was developed by plantation owners to teach people not to think for themselves and to follow orders. So what do we have? We have an education system that teaches you to bow to authority, not think for yourself, do what you're told. And it kills creativity. And then you get a bunch of people that are so afraid of criticism that they bow down to doing whatever they're told so they can get somebody to like them, which is a symptom that you don't love yourself enough to be your own best friend and be your own cheerleader. Well, people used to tell me all the time that I was crazy or I was stupid. And I would say, <laughs> Yeah, but I'm the one that's happy here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's such a great, me it's a, me a measuring stick, you know, is just being able to look in the mirror and look within yourself and feel within yourself and be like, I'm happy. I like who I am. I like I, the choices that I've made in my life. As my wife Angie says, be yourself. Everybody else is taken. Mm, absolutely. You know? So much Breathe some that. fire, man. Yeah. I mean, Nietzsche said, he who has a why can bear almost any how, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, Nietzsche. I love Nietzsche. And I, I resonate so deep, man. I spent nearly, you know, 25 years trying to please my dad, doing something that had absolutely no meaning to me uh, whatsoever and wondering what was wrong with me um, because of yes. it. Yes. You know? Well, and, at least it was only 25 years. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and the last the last thing before I walked out, he goes to me, you will never make any money without me. Uh-huh. And then, then, then I found meaning and things, things turned around very, very quickly. The first guardian at the gate is always dad, right? Dad's your, you're supposed to be your best supporter, but he's usually your, your biggest criticizer too. So our first real devil we got to learn to deal with is is our father typically mm. yeah you know and so what my father did for me was not only did he teach me a lot did he give me a hell of a good work ethic and toughen me up a lot but he made me so uncomfortable i couldn't wait to get rid of him mm. right so i'm like my my first journey my first hero's journey is get off of this farm and not need my mother and father to pay for anything, because as long as I need their money, you got to remember he who has the gold rules and whoever's giving you money is controlling your life. So I made it my mission. So by the time I was 16, I could go out and feed myself and I never look back. And, and I, I watch how many people even in their thirties and forties are still getting handouts from their parents. So they fuck their business up and mommy and daddy have to rescue them. And, you know, they have to ask permission to go to the jungle to do an ayahuasca journey. I'm like, well, that's why you need the ayahuasca right there. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like my point is, though, you, you know, our parents are typically the first guardian at the gate we meet. And if we can't have enough love, respect and trust for ourselves and our own inner soul guidance our inner sense of purpose our inner sense of direction 
which when you're young is usually your sense of desire. Like I desired competitive sports. I desired racing. Yeah. Um, you know, if your parents can talk you out of your authentic desires, well, let's just say you haven't passed your first trial into adulthood yet. You're mm -hmm. not an adult yet. And yeah. to, to contribute to the world, you've got to be an adult. And so I think we have a sea of children and adult bodies out there, and you can see it with all the mandates for vaccinations and all that shit. You watch all these yogis and health nuts running off to go against everything they teach just to follow some dictate without any research or, you know, you open the insert on the vaccine is blank. I'm like, okay, good. That should be a question for you right there. I mean, without rattling off a million things I could rattle off. I watch mm -hmm. this and I go, yep, that's how you get rich. You turn everybody into a child that does whatever anyone with a white jacket tells them to do and spends all their money on exactly what's probably going to kill them. And so, you know, you, when you realize the religious model is a model of control and the corporate model is largely a model of control. And your parental model is a model of control. You just have to say to yourself, okay, what am I willing to do to have the money to make my own decisions, to feed myself, put a roof over my head, wipe my own ass and be my own person. And if you can't do that, you will never have the brass it takes to achieve mastery. Because you will always be somebody else's play toy. Mic drop right there. Mm. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head, man. If, if, if I love what you said before about like if someone can convince you against your own authentic desires. You know, that that's where it starts. That's where that light, that inner light starts dimming and dimming and dimming yep. and dimming. And you see that over, over decades. And when a person all of a sudden, you know, is 50, 60 years old and it's like, what did I do with my life? And I'm 42 years old and, and I see it. I see it. Some people who had this, this dream, you know, at 18 years old and they wanted to do something. Maybe some people I grew up with or were in my community and, you know, their parents didn't let them. Yeah. Or they bribed yeah. them to do something else with money. Yeah. And then they just accepted um, the life that that other path. Now, you know, yep. some of them might be content and happy, but deep down, you know, they wanted more. They wanted to do something else. And yeah, and I'm so grateful. Like my parents are old school Greek immigrants. You know, they came to this country with nothing and built up a business and and provided a nice foundation. But they wanted me to have a different life. And as much as I love them, if I listened to my parents, I would be miserable. Yes. And I yes. went against it. I went on my hero's journey. I traveled around the world. I did some crazy shit. And I'm Good. so grateful for it. You know? Me, yeah, I'm grateful that you did it too. You know, the the blessing of our parents is that when we reach the point where we were ready to spread our own wings, which is what puberty's for, you're supposed to reject your parents' ideas when you go through puberty. Otherwise, evolution halts because our parents are a generation behind us as children, right? Like 
my three-year-old daughter can do shit with an iPhone that I don't even know how she's doing it. I'm like, how does she do that? You know, like my point is, you see, their minds are open. So they're like sponges. They don't have any resistance to learning and seeing what's going on in the environment. So the point is, it is puberty that's supposed to trigger the opening to what's hip what's really happening that mom and dad can't see because they're too conditioned to their own way of doing things. And so when we go off on our own, the most important thing we can do is sift through mom and dad's ideas, rules, dictates. If mom and dad are good with money, hold on to that knowledge. If mom and dad mm -hmm. are shitty with management of alcohol and drugs, then beware. As Carl Jung says, all children are tasked with the unfinished business of their parents' lives. So wherever mom and dad didn't have their shit together, that's your first thing. Okay, I got to make sure I get lessons, coaching, therapy, guidance, school on that. But wherever mom and dad were good, like my, my stepfather, he taught me how to fucking work and not make excuses. And he made me a tough athlete because I used to say to my athlete buddies that would whine and cry in football training or boxing training. I'm going, you wouldn't last a day with my old man. We are, we're just getting warmed up here. <laughs> farm Price. boys, farm boys are the toughest. They're the toughest no, motherfuckers out there, man. No, no question. I would say you split firewood for eight hours straight with an ax and see when you got blisters, the size of the palm of your hand that are bleeding and your father doesn't even give a shit, you keep that ax moving or the ass kick in the ass that you're going to get will be a lot worse. So but the point I'm making is, you know, I, I took what my father gave me that worked. Yeah. I rejected a lot of his ideas because I could see they didn't work in his own life. Like running out of gas because you're too stupid to check the gas tank. It's like, okay, you're 20 miles from home. Here we are walking down the street, five kids freezing to death because somebody's too stupid to look at the gas gauge. Losing tools everywhere and blaming us for it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make sure I know where my tools are. And I'm always going to make sure that when it's at quarter tank, I go get it filled up so I don't get stuck somewhere in a much more uncomfortable situation. Now, you know, without going through the whole laundry list, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. We, we, we have to yeah, take, take, stock. take the good, take stock and say, wherever mom and dad are having problems, I don't want to repeat those behaviors, but where mom and dad did good, I got to make sure I hold that wisdom. You know, my mm -hmm. stepdaughter father could build anything. I mean, he was a master. He was a special effects man for universal studios. I mean, he could build anything. So I watched this guy build stuff out of stained glass, out of wood, out of plastic, out of metal. He was a underwater um, demolitions expert. He could blast and weld underwater. He's a, he a highly trained scuba diver. He was a smoke jumper in the fire department. I mean, he's the president of our farming association. So as much as he drove me crazy and I couldn't wait to get away from him, when I did walk away, it was dead obvious that he had taught me a lot. My mother is a world-class sculptor, a spinner, a weaver, um, very creative, but emotionally like a tornado, you know, like, okay, 
I don't need that in my life. So I got to make sure I kind of hold my center, but I'll take the creativity. So I walked away from my parents with work ethic and creativity and then had to learn about managing money. And I had to learn about managing my emotions or my life would start falling apart. And so would my relationship. So the point is the parents really, they give us gifts and they give us an awareness of what we don't want to repeat. And when we step out into the world, it's up to us to say, who do I choose to be? What part of mom and dad works for me? And where do I reinvent myself so that I can go beyond them? Because if we don't do that, evolution is halted. What's happening now is people are just copies of mom and dad doing the same shit, getting in the same trouble with the same drugs and the same money problems and the same dogmatic religious ideas that keep them polarized against people succumbing to doctors that don't know what the hell they're doing or are sellouts, listening to politicians that are morons. It's like, okay, if you live that way, then the same pain your mom and dad are in becomes your future. But if we step out into the world and evolve and take the opportunity to do something new and to be something new and to create something new and bring something new not only by ourselves, but other, with other people, then life gets juicy. And, and it's only because of younger guys like you guys. I mean, I say younger, you're 42, so you're not that young, but it's not like you're old either. Uh, you know, I'm 61, <laughs> so I can look back. I can, I can remember when I was 42. In fact, I was in the best shape of my life at 42. I was kicking royal ass at 42. I would hammer professional athletes into the dirt and scare the shit out of them. Because they, I was old enough to be their dad. And so 42, by the way, is the, when a man reaches his peak because he's young enough to still be fit and vital, but he's got enough life experience to have wisdom. So 42 mm. is the magic number for the male because he's strong and smart. And he there has got enough energy to do something significant in his life and enough wisdom to not be stupid about it. So there's your magic number. Hmm. Until you're 42, you're smart, but often stupid. After 42, you get smarter, but you start not taking care of yourself and making excuses. So then you have to get other people to do stuff for you. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm 32, bro. <laughs> well, you got 10 more years of... <laughs> You know, exploration, uh, you know, really, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, 32, you're still, you know, as we used to say, young, dumb, and full of cum, but um, not quite that. That's 22. <laughs> 22 is where you're young, dumb, and full of cum. 32, you're Definitely. probably less full of cum and not so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I, got two, I got two kids. Oh, so, yeah. oh good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got oh, a question, if you don't, if yeah. you don't mind. Okay. Was there any ever resolution or reprieve with your relationship with your stepfather? Did that ever come to a point? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of pain because he was so physically violent. Um, I know why my brother committed suicide. Um, I mean, it was not an easy, you know, imagine being in a concentration camp and you pretty much got it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm talking trips to the hospital, broken violence you know 
skulls being broken and noses and ribs and whatever else. I'll try to tell you the story of what happened quickly. Um, I was fighting for the championship in the 82nd Airborne Division. And they did something that they're never supposed to do in the Army, and that's let an officer enter a boxing tournament and fight against enlisted soldiers. Because in the past, whenever that happened and an enlisted soldier would beat an officer, then all the enlisted soldiers would start being disrespectful to officers because they would think, oh, they're pussies. We're not going to listen to them. So they made it a law in the military that no officer can compete in boxing or martial arts against an officer. Somehow, the general of the 82nd Airborne Division gave permission to an officer to enter the 82nd Airborne Division championship and it became very obvious why. One, he was probably betting a lot of money on the guy, but you know there was probably 90 fighters or more in the tournament, so it was like a three-day tournament. And so I'm watching this guy knocking people out. I mean, sometimes in the first round, within like 20 seconds, and just knocking people out bad. I'm like, whatever this dude's on, he's a badass dude. And I'm doing the same thing coming up my side. So he's on the other side of the bracket. I'm climbing up and I'm watching this guy going, shit, if I have to fight this guy, it is not going to be fun. This guy's very skilled, very fast and has a knockout punch. And he was a Puerto Rican guy. And um, Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, you, you have there's only one way to win a fight with them. You got to knock them out. My coaches used to say, if you get in the ring with a Puerto Rican or a Mexican or a Russian, you got to bring your own judges, K and O. <laughs> if they don't come with you, you're going, you're going to be showing off your shoe size to the audience. So long story made short, I ended up having to fight this guy for the championship. And this dude hit so freaking hard. I mean, I, my sparring partner for three years was the world champion in kickboxing in his weight class. And he was the Canadian national champion in lightweight boxing. And I've been hit hard by this guy and lots of other guys. This dude hit me so hard that my entire left arm went paralyzed. I couldn't even move it. I had to run from him and try to figure out how to get my arm to turn. I had pins and needles and electrical shock, shocks like lightning moving through my arm for about 30 seconds. I mean, he like rattled my brain so hard, it literally shut my arm off. And I'm like, okay. And I mean, I'm in an arena with 5,000 guys stomping their feet. This is the biggest fight of the year. And there's a lot of money going down here. There's a lot of generals and big ranking officials betting on me. And I'm representing the boxing team. And this guy's representing the officers. And by the end of the second round, I realized I'm in deep shit. I have had a lot of tough fights and my brother was a badass guy to fight, you know, and it was fist fights with my brother. And it was like seriously dangerous hospital visits, knockouts, bleeding, uh, you know, a lot of blood. And this dude's putting it on me like I have not had before. And I'm pretty tough. I mean, he's rocking my freaking brain. And so my corner man, Nathaniel Finch, who was the light, uh, who was the heavyweight champion of the United States at the time, we had been practicing a technique that's very rare. For two weeks, 
in boxing, we'd been practicing this technique where right when they ring the bell, you get up out of the corner and you sprint across the ring and you hit the guy as hard as you can because it's quite a shocking thing to have someone run at you full speed in a boxing ring. And because we were fighting the best boxers in the world, we had to try different techniques to kind of shock them out of their sense of self, you know? And so Finch is looking at me and I'm like half gone, you know, I'm stoned. I got a freaking coma is what I got. He goes, Paul, you remember that technique we've been practicing? He said, right now is the time to try it because you got a choice. You knock this guy out or you're going to be in the newspaper laying on the ground and everyone's going to be looking at your shoe size and you're going to be the embarrassment of the boxing team. So when they ring that fucking bell, you get up, you run across the ring and you knock this dude out before he kills you. Do you get it? I said, yes, I get it. And so when they rang the bell, I got up, I sprinted across the ring and I hit this dude with everything I had. And I'm telling you what, it felt like my hand went right through a cantaloupe. I hit him so hard, his feet came up in the air. He was horizontal, about three feet off the ground. He hit the canvas. He bounced off the floor. He was convulsing. It took him about five minutes. They couldn't even wake him up with smelling salts. By the time they got this dude awake, there was three doctors in the ring. The sad part of about it is I detached his retina. And back then, that was an end of your boxing career. And so I won the championship, but I went into the change room and I broke down into an emotional crisis because this guy was so dangerous to myself and my ego that I had to go from boxing to hunting to get rid of him. I crossed from being a sportsman to hunting. And I'd been in this situation with my brother many times. He would attack me with tools and pitchforks and everything else. So I've been so badly wounded that I had to take my brother out before he killed me. And, and there's a primal fear that comes up when you're really facing what feels like death like that. And when my father would beat us, I would be scared, but I knew I had to do something before he ripped my mother's head off or put my brother in the hospital or something. So this guy pushed me into my survival instincts. And I realized at that moment when they announced that his retina was detached, and you can see his eye was all bloody, that he wasn't fighting me, he was fighting my dad. I realized that all the anger and all the pain and all the fear from being raised with a violent father like that. And the reason I started boxing and kickboxing and studying martial arts was because I knew one day I was going to have to beat him up to protect my family or, or whatever I had to do because he was that dangerous. And so the emotion that just poured out of me was so intense. I sat in that change room and cried for four hours. I literally was in a catharsis. I couldn't even walk because I was so disappointed that I had not been able to hold the position of a sportsman. The guy scared me so bad and threatened my ego so much. He now became an animal that I had to hunt. And I hunted him with all the fear and all the rage I used to have to deal with my father and my brother. And so I made a commitment to myself that day that I would never 
hurt people unless it was for self-defense. And that I had to take all the energy that I'd put into beating people up and put it into helping people. And so I've never put boxing gloves on again. I don't want to do boxing training. People always try to get me to do it. But I spent 12 years of my life fighting. And I got good enough to hurt people. And I realized that all of that was because I was trying to defend myself against the fear of injury from my dad. Now, I had just become the trainer of the Army boxing team. I was still fighting, but I was also the trainer. And a bunch of the guys were, you know, calling me a pussy and, you know, what were you crying for? You beat the guy, you were the hero, and you're sitting in the room crying. What's wrong with you, man? And they calling me a white boy and all this shit, you know? So I walked in, we, we would sit in, a, we had a wrestling mat, so we would sit in a circle, all 30 of us. I walked into the center of the ring. And I said, I'll tell you why I was crying, but first I'm going to ask you a question. I said, right in this room, there's 30 of the best amateur boxers in the world. I have one question for you. How many of you started fighting because you felt like you had to protect yourself from your father? 29 hands went up. 29 hands on a 30-man boxing team went up because they were so afraid of their dad that they had to take martial arts and boxing training for fear that if they didn't, he might hurt them or hurt someone in their family. I said, the reason I was crying is because it was my father that knocked him out. It wasn't me. And I don't want to become my father. So as of today, I'm no longer a fighter on this boxing team. I will train you, but I'm no longer fighting because I want to devote myself to helping people, not hurting them. Because I realized that my motive to fight was actually my motive to protect myself from fear. And I don't want my life to be based on fear. And so that that is another hero's journey. Yeah. Thank you so much, man, for so sharing such, all that. Oh, yeah. It's such an incredible story, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for getting deep with us here for the past 90 minutes. It's been such an honor and we honor every single hero's journey which you've been through and thank you for all the gifts um, which have come about in your life as a result of all that. Is there any, anything final that you'd like to leave our audience with um, before we close here? If you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. Yeah. It's time to wake up, clean up, grow up and show up. Because if you haven't been paying attention, there's people in the world that are very psychologically sick that have way too much money and want to put you in a cage and make you a little corporate pig and stick you with their needles and stuff shit in your body and turn you into their slave. Right now, we need gong fu. You need to master something. You need to surround yourself with people that share the same values. We got to honor sovereignty and protect it. And we got to start taking care of this planet because we got a shelf life. It's a living biological system and it's on its last legs. Anybody that's got more than two brain cells holding hands, just looking around should see that. 
Great Barrier Reef dying, oil spills, weather problems, rising temperatures. I could go on and on and on. We've killed 60% of all the animals on this planet in the last 50 years due to advanced science and industry. We've wiped out the farmlands. We're running out of topsoil. I've spent my whole life studying everything I need to know to understand health, including soil science, including the environment. We are, if we're lucky, 20 years from an environmental collapse that will be catastrophic. We need to get together and sing and dance and celebrate and stand up for each other and stop putting money in the hands of large corporations that have no interest in our welfare or that of the planet and enjoy doing it and make the sacrifices we got to make so that we're not being bled out and spied on and manipulated and having our heads fucked with and our children ruined and having kids being given rights to get their own vaccinations and sex changes and stuff that you're not supposed to even come close to making a decision like that until you've got enough maturity to even think straight. We've got dark, dark people in the world. It's time to wake up, clean up, grow up, and show up. We don't have room for a bunch of kids on the hind tit in adult bodies. It's time to get it on, baby. <laughs> and the way you Let's do, do that... As you find something you love enough to become. And if you like to sing, sing some truth. If you like to dance, dance some truth. If you like to paint, paint the truth. If you like to write, write some truth. J.P. Sears was one of my, he was my protege for five years. He worked directly for me. And the day he came to me and said, Paul, I think I want to leave and go off, do my own thing and work on my comedy. I hugged him and said, I trained you to follow your heart. Go do it. And look, there's a guy that's made an impact on the world. And many of my students have. There's just one example of many I could give of exactly what we all need to do. We need to stop sucking on the hind tit, expecting other people to pay our way. We need to have a lot of love and respect for this planet because without it, we're dead. And stop worrying about the next iPhone or your coolest BMW or your leather pants and start thinking about whether or not we're going to have food tomorrow and taking care of the soil and protecting the water and protecting the skies and standing up against electromagnetic pollution and all the things that we got going on. And that is our hero's journey. This is our collective rite of passage. We're at a time in the world where we either become adults and accept responsibility for our future and take it back, or we become guinea pigs in an electronic jail and pin cushions for psychopaths. That's my final words. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Excellent. Nothing else to say. Yeah, excellent. No, nothing else to say on that. Paul, you're yeah. a legend. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to connect with you uh, yeah. and meet you and uh, just share the last 90 minutes with you. Uh, I wish you, your whole family, nothing but the best. And I look forward to crossing paths in person one day, perhaps in California. 
a whole great spirit. It is done. It is done. It is done. That's it. Let's do it. All right, man. All right, guys. Gentlemen, Paul check. Thanks for listening to here for the truth. This has been amazing. We'll see you next time. Okay, guys. Lots of love. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Oh man. That was awesome. Bro. Like those stories, that life experience, how much that guy's accomplished. That's mind blowing, man. Like you can't hate on that. No, not at all, man. I mean, talk about uh, living your truth and honoring yourself and honoring your heart and, and going after the things that you want and learning through trial and error and, and just experiencing life to the fullest. I mean, so many stories in there, so much wisdom. Uh, what a blessing to, to spend the last 90 minutes with, uh, with Paul check. Yeah, absolutely. And guys, thank you for listening. Um, right before we head off, I just want to remind you that our private membership community, friends of the truth is available. Should you feel the call to connect with like-minded community and stay on the path of your highest calling with awesome cutting edge knowledge. Um, so yeah, that's what we got for you. Thanks for listening. So much love. And we'll see you for episode 100 next week. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms because they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.